James Can. Is it James Can or James Khan? Khan. Finding hypnotic beauty in neon and rain slick streets, sparks and steel, thief effortless. Thief effortless. Damn it. <laughs> thief effortless. <laughs> Damn it. <clears throat> all right, all right. Thief effortless. <laughs> effortlessly. Effortlessly. Welcome to another episode of Criterion on the Couch, a podcast from two amateur film buffs as they make their way through the vast Criterion collection one title at a time, all from the comfort of the couch. I'm Adam Yurick, along with Jim Massessa, and today's episode features the 1981 Michael Mann film, Thief. Jim's going to take us through the official Criterion summary and specs. The contemporary American auteur Michael Mann's bold artistic sensibility was already fully formed when he burst out of the gate with Thief his debut feature. James Kahn stars in one of his most riveting performances as a no-nonsense ex-con safecracker, planning to leave the criminal world behind after one final diamond heist, but he discovers that escape is not as simple as he'd hoped. Thief effortlessly established the moody stylishness and tactile approach to action that would also define such later iconic entertainments from man as Miami Vice, Manhunter, and Heat. This movie came out in 1981, It's 124 minutes long. It's in color, 5.1 surround sound, uh, 1.85 to 1 aspect ratio, and it is Criterion Spine number 691. Wow, I can't believe I did that all in one take. That's You didn't say if you're following along at home. First episode ever. I'm trying, trying to mix things up. Yeah, so I've owned this for quite a while. I think this was one of the first Criterion movies I bought, but I never watched it until watching it for this uh, episode and then I've actually watched it twice now I watched the regular and I watched the director's commentary which is Michael Mann and James Kahn it was pretty good the director's commentary but they're a little hard to understand they got some real thick yeah they do accents like Chicago accents when they're just kind of yeah. joking around yeah this is the third time that I've seen the film it's again one of those criterion movies that I bought without having seen it before Mm-hmm. Honestly, the description, the fact that it was Michael Mann's first film and it starred James Caan, I was like, ah, I have to, uh, I have to see this movie, and I definitely like it. I'm a big fan of the, uh, I'm a big fan of the heist film. I mean, Michael Mann's probably directed the quintessential heist film, which is uh, Heat, yep, which is another great, great film. Yeah, I really like this movie. It's kind of really moody and has a really great film noir aspect to it, and really great cameo performances by uh, a bunch of great actors. Yeah. I don't think a lot of people really know about this movie. And I've mentioned to a couple people and I have yet to really encounter anyone who's actually even seen it uh, kind of just like fades back there, which is a shame because it's a, it's a really great film. Real quick synopsis is this is a guy who's recently gotten out of jail. It seems like he's kind of trying to go legit, but he's also doing these bank heists, not really bank heists, just heists. Well, he's a safe cracker. Yeah. And so he gets in with a, a wrong associate, and tries to get out at the end and uh, runs into some difficulty there. So they, he is a safecracker, and it says that on the cover. But I'm a little suspicious how he became a safecracker. So I know this is based on a real person. It's based on a book. The book was uh, The Home Invaders, Confessions of a Cat Burglar. And the guy it's based on, I believe, is one of the actors in this movie. 
I think he's the one cop. Yes, but he's the cop with like the real thick Chicago accent that's yeah. like the shorter guy with the glasses. He does more of the talking than the other one. Yeah, yeah. He's like the big guy in the, uh, not the big guy, sorry. He's the big role in the in the uh, uh, interrogation scene. Yes. So I'm not, I'm not doubting that this occurred, but I think there's a point where he's talking to uh, Jesse, mm-hmm. Tuesday Weld, and he's telling her how he originally went to jail. What'd you go up for? I stole $40. $40? Yeah. Started with a two-year bit, parole in six months. And right away, I got into this problem with these two guys. They tried to turn me out. So I picked up uh, nine more on, on a manslaughter beef, some other things. I was 20 when I went in, 31 when I come out. So he went to jail for stealing $40. So I'm assuming he is not a master safe cracker at that point. Right. And then he seems to be when he gets out of jail. So does that mean he just, everything he learned about breaking into safes, he learned from Willie Nelson's character, Okla? I mean, maybe, like the theory of it. Obviously, you have to actually do it. And he would have been, what, in his 30s? So he's clearly like in his late 40s Yeah. in this film. Well, 40s. Yeah. If Willie Nelson's character was his, it was Okla, right? If yeah. He, if he taught him everything he needed to know within the confines of prison like he just gets out and has some practical experience he's not really a a safe cracker he breaks into safes but he's not like what you would think of as like your classic uh movie person like putting their ear or a stethoscope to a safe and listening and trying to turn knobs i mean he's brute force breaking into a safe right i mean he's not like gus and psych with his like you know safe cracker magazine subscription like <laughs> touching the, the dial and, you know, feeling out what the combination is. No, they're welding and um, cutting and just physically breaking the safe. There is some kind of smarts about getting past alarm systems. Yeah. I really like that. And I, I know a, a lot of that stuff, that was kind of what was taken from the real life story. It's a little less interesting nowadays, I feel like, because when I was watching, I guess, the bigger bank heist or bigger heist towards the end, it just seemed very kind of bland compared to today's standards. There was a like a phone line and a radio signal that they had to intercept, and that was really it. And then the safe itself. You know, nowadays there's like lasers and uh, silent alarm systems and things are wired to the internet. There's wireless. There'd be so many other things. I don't know. I guess from an action standpoint, it seemed a little dull to me in that sense, but it was still very tense. Well, I think the movie's less about, I mean, it's a heist film, but it's less about the heist and more about just how this guy is, you know, really dealing, you know, how Frank's kind of dealing with everything in his life. Because he's clearly like, you know, he carries around that photo in his wallet that's like the ideal family or his like ideal goals of what he wants to do in his life. I think that's kind of what this film's you know, more about like that aspect. And the heist is really more of like the subplot. Yeah. He shows like a picture, like a little collage he's put together while he was in in prison. Yeah. He shows that to Jesse. Um, There's like a 10 minute scene of just the two of them sitting at a booth in a diner. He's kind of explaining to her that the stuff in his, in that picture is what he's working towards. What do they call that nowadays? It's like a, it's like a motivation board or like a goal board. 
Yeah, something like that. Picture what you uh, want to achieve or whatever. So, uh, you know, it's got like a family and a big house and a wife. He's kind of got it in his head that the whole reason he's doing these heists is because he's just going to get enough money to have these things that he wants. And then that's it. That's what he tells himself anyway. And that's what he tells her. But he doesn't seem to live that way. He says that, but then he also turns around and tells her things like, I wear $150 slacks. I wear silk shirts. I wear $800 suits. I wear a gold watch. I wear a perfect D flawless three carat ring. I change cars like other guys change their shows. Like he's living this big spender life on the outside when really if he was focusing on just trying to get these few things, he could have done that after one robbery. Because in the, in the opening scene, he's, he's robbing a safe mm-hmm. and um, something, they do this again towards the end. And this is also from the book. When he breaks into the safe, he doesn't take everything in the safe. He takes the uncut diamonds that are still in the envelopes. He's throwing out jewelry and, and, you know, cash. He doesn't want that because it's not worth his time. He's just going after the high value plain stones that he then like flips with some guy that he knows. But really, if he took all that other stuff and kind of worked on distributing it, he'd probably make enough money just from one or two robberies to have enough money for all the stuff he wants. But there's almost like a, like a certain sense of pride he gets by only taking those certain things. Like he has this code. Yeah. Plus, I think a lot of those other things are, you know, much harder to fence or, you know, you've got like serial numbers on things and stuff like that. I think the uncut diamonds is, you know, he has somebody who can do that. He knows exactly how much they're worth. He's not trading in all these different aspects of things that he has to deal with. Yeah, that's kind of what you assume Okla taught him that. Like, don't don't try to sell these things, you'll get right. caught. That's where I think he has that definitely that ingrained in him. He definitely has like a really solid ethos in terms of who he is and what he's doing. And he's not necessarily a great guy or a good guy, but he def- he has his like you said, he has his code, you know, of what he's really what he's really trying to follow. Yeah, what I was trying to remember earlier when he's showing that photo montage to Jesse, he says, "You gotta forget time." You gotta not give a f- if you live or die. Uh, you gotta get to where nothing means nothing. He's talking about prison. Yeah. But that seems very contrary to the stuff he wants. He cares about getting this stuff, but he's also still trying to live this life of not caring about things. That's the main conflict in this movie because he starts to care about her. And then by the end of the movie, all those things he cares about his friendship with Jim Belushi's character. Mm hmm his wife, he has a kid, they have a house. Those things get used against him in the end. And then he has to cut ties with those in order to kind of resolve that conflict. Right. You know, he's in a hurry to get to his ideal place, to that ideal picture. I mean, that's really why he takes on those, that other job, because he thinks, oh, this will be the last score and I can get out. But he doesn't realize, as someone who talks about how nobody runs him, he basically gets run. And it kind of all gets taken away from him in the end. He tells Jesse in that same scene, he says, Look, I have run out of time. I have lost it all. And so I can't, I can't work fast enough to catch up, and I can't run fast enough to catch up, and the only thing that catches me up is doing my magic act. But it ends, you know? It will end. When I got this right there. It ends, it's over. Because he spent all this time in prison, 
he knows like there's no way through legal means he's going to be able to get those things. He just does not have enough time in his life to do that. So this is really his only option to do that. So to talk about the pace of the movie, you know, one of the things that I liked was the really long opening credit scene. Mm -hmm. I think that really set the mood for the movie. You know, it was like really dark and wet and the light was reflecting off the road and the car. There's the really great shot, I think, of the film right at the beginning where it's the street light through the mist, like looking up at all the fire escapes. Yeah. It's got that weird like 80s guitar soundtrack, you know, and just like the really close up macro shots of like him drilling and, and you know, and all in that area. Yeah. One of my favorite scenes is just him when he's walking along the observatory area in Chicago, like at dawn, um, and he runs into that guy sitting there in the, the corner and... yeah. If you've never been into Chicago, you can walk right along there and you, I mean, you literally, you're right there in the lake. Like if you don't, if you take a couple steps wrong, but you can, you know, people riding their bikes and everything down there. Uh, and he kind of has that little weird interaction with that sky chief guy as he's kind of handing him a breakfast sandwich. So I think that's just a really cool shot with the water in the background, the skyline and everything's there. And like you said earlier, it's not like, there's not a lot of action, but that's precisely what type of movie this is, is it's a very slow paced it reminds me of the movie The American with George Clooney. I don't know if you saw that or not, but that was a movie that kind of got pitched as an action film because he was an assassin kind of on the run. But it was a really slow paced, like European style film where there's not a lot of action. But when there is, it's kind of like these pockets of fast paced stuff. And then the rest of it's kind of more of a slow paced, like moody film as you're following this character trying to, you know, get through his life. That opening scene, that opening safe crack, they do a shot which was very interesting. And they didn't mention it on the director's commentary where he's drilling a hole through the locking mechanism or to the locking mechanism Mm -hmm. through the vault door. And then when he finally gets the drill bit out, and this is like an industrial, it's a magnetic drill that has to like clamp onto the safe using a magnet because it's so heavy. And then he can kind of like ratchet the drill into the vault door. So when he finally pulls it out, the camera actually goes into the hole that he just drilled right into the locking mechanism. Yeah, that's a cool shot. And nowadays, you would see that shot and not think anything of it because it's probably as soon as the camera gets up to the door, it becomes CG and you would then see like a CG locking mechanism, which they could not have done it in 1981 when this was made. They didn't mention on the commentary how they did that shot, but I'm very curious what that was because I don't think that's just a camera zooming in. It seems like it was like a composite of a few shots. Could have been, could have been like, I mean, they have macro cameras and stuff like that back then. So it would have been able to like a macro lens or like a, uh, what do they call it? Like, you know, just like a little like lipstick camera type thing that would be that small that would be able to go, go into it. Yeah. That would kind of be able to pull it off. Which they could have done, but they did start from pretty far back. So I'm, I'm wondering if like it was two shots and then they kind of like, there's a transition point that you just zoom past as it zooms in. But it's really well done. There wasn't anything else quite like that shot, but there was a lot of, like you said, the, the lighting, uh, reflections off of a lot of wet surfaces or car hoods. He owns like a used car lot. And there's a scene at night where he's walking through the rows of cars mm-hmm. and there's string lights above. And it's just, yeah. it's such a, a beautiful shot. Yeah. As far as like cinematography goes, there was a lot of really well done shots like that. Yeah, I think it was lit really, really well. That was what helped it. That Like just the way that each scene was lit was like done really purposefully and in a way it was like overly dramatic i think that's what kind of highlights a lot of these like film noirs you know they always had that very dramatic high contrast black and white look to them yeah yeah and i think this film almost has that feel it almost is 
it's almost black and white without being black and white. Like the way that they use contrast and color in it is it's not like it's like an overly saturated, definitely had that more of that muted look. And so like neon colors, neon lights and different things like that kind of pop out more. I feel like there's a lot of more modern movies that work really, really hard to kind of get that look that this film is really able to achieve. Yeah, it wasn't so much that you felt, you know, it was overdone. It was enough that it gave it that stylized look without too much of it. And there was one other really, I thought was a great shot. I love looking for those long shots. And they had a shot that was 53 seconds long. The police are following him and he's trying to throw them off. So he does some stops where he like gets out of the car and then he like gets back in another car. So there's a shot where the police car is following a bus. Oh, right. Yeah. The camera must be in another car filming this police car. The police car pulls up behind the bus and it's staying behind the bus. But then the camera goes up next to the bus and then gets actually in front of the bus. And you're looking at the front, looking up to see where the bus is going on the sign. And then the camera from there actually pans up to the night sky. So it's dark. And then it can go from that dark shot into the next scene. I mean, that's got to be a hard shot to get. It looked like they were on an actual highway. I don't know if that was a closed highway. It seems like this was all shot in Chicago, so I would imagine that might have been a real working road. Yeah. But yeah, really great shot. I wasn't expecting that in an older movie like this. To start talking about directing, I think that's what really you know, sets this movie apart, really sets Michael Mann apart, is just the way that he directed this film. And one of those things is those longer, slow, methodical shots. That's more of a scenic shot, you know, as it goes on. But in other aspects of the movie, he just really kind of lets the actor perform. It's almost more of like a theater director letting the camera just run without cutting back and forth and letting the editing tell the story. He's just kind of letting these actors give their performance. Yeah. And that's really noticeable during conversations because in modern films, you'd see the camera cut back and forth for reactions. And there's some whole scenes here where, I mean, you're hearing the, the other actor's lines and the camera has not moved to them. It's still stayed on James Caan. And you're really getting his reaction and his face throughout the entire conversation. I think the other thing he did in this movie, too, with actors, and especially in conversations, was he had actors. They were on the far left or the far right side of the screen. He was, like, really pushing Hmm. the rule of thirds and really kind of using the wide screen that he had to really set off and have these really interesting shots. And I know that from, you know, looking at some of the special features and and looking into this movie is that he composed a lot of his own shots, too. Like, some directors that let the cinematographer do that, the director of the photography, and let them compose the shots and, you know, get all that set up. And they'll focus more on the actor's performance and making sure things, you know, are kind of blocked properly. But he really went into, like, you know, from the photography and cinematography aspect, I think he probably, you know, overweighted on his decisions even more than his director of photography. There were some other shots like the, uh, that scene we mentioned earlier where they're Frank and Jesse are sitting in the diner. They aren't necessarily at the edge of the screen, but it's still a well-divided shot. Mm-hmm. They kind of frame where your focus should be. And then there's at least one scene where Frank goes to visit Okla in prison and he's talking to him through the glass. And especially when Okla is talking, he is huge on the screen. Yeah. He's almost the whole shot. It really gives you that sense of confinement and how close they are to talk. The walls are right next to them. They're divided from the other convicts that are on the other side. And they're really just cramped in there having this kind of whispered, intimate conversation. 
without having to, to do anything extra, just the framing of the shot really gives you the sense of where they are and what's happening. Yeah, yeah. And I really, um, I think one of the one of the better scenes is um, the actual, like at the end when they are, that whole heist aspect, just the way that it's paced and kind of it is slow and kind of getting to that moment. What I think is really interesting too is just they actually like cut into a safe. They had a plasma cutter yeah. and they actually cut into that safe and really kind of had one shot at doing that. I think it's it's like a bar of magnesium or something that they yeah 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 but it's like I think they said it's something like nine hundred degrees or it was something ridiculous yeah I mean I think think that just adds so much more realism to it because I feel like today it probably would have been or even back then like you know they think of try to ways to like fake it but you know to actually do it for real and yeah and I think in a lot of cases I remember um hearing uh, an interview with James Conn where he talked about how he worked really really hard and he worked with the James Santucci who's the author of the book that you mentioned. And learned how to crack safes. Like he said, by the end of this, it was like he could crack safes. Like he could just go into somebody's house if he wanted. You know, he'd go over to relatives' houses and they would put a safe in front of him and he would crack it. That he got that good at it. And in some of the scenes, he was actually, when they show him cracking safes, you know, he was he's like trying to like drill into it and stuff like that. He learned legit how to do that. He's actually doing that work. It's not a stunt double. You can tell they're not cutting away or cutting really close up in certain areas so it could be somebody else. And even when they do those close-ups, it's actually James Caan doing all that work, which I think is, which is pretty cool. From an acting perspective, I think that helps an actor get way more into the role when the director kind of like lets them immerse themselves into it and really experience it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, James Caan's probably his greatest role is in The Godfather, and obviously that's what he's most well-known for. But I think this is probably like second to that performance. I mean, he's just like really, really good. And one of the reasons why I like watching this movie more than once is just because he's just such a great performance in the film. You kind of don't like him, but you're rooting for him at the same time. And just the way that he, his character, his arrogance, and just he's, again, like we talked about earlier about, you know, that ethos that he has or his, you know, the goal that he's trying to do it. Like he's pretty ruthless at trying to get to having what he wants. And what's interesting is it's not really that what he wants is more money. He just wants a life. Yeah. And I think that's what kind of makes the movie different and why you can kind of root for him in the end. That wanting of that life is really his undoing in the end too. Or maybe not the wanting, but the speed at which he's trying to do it. Yeah. So he meets this guy, Leo, played by Robert Prosky, who is kind of like the fence for half the city is what he says. And he seems like a lovable grandfather type figure at first when you meet him. And I remember when I first met him, I'm like, who's this guy? Like, why'd they get this like terrible actor for this part? But as that progresses, you really see like, oh, this guy, this is the real like godfather of the movie. You know, Frank has now gotten in deeper than he intended to. He doesn't know it yet. But when he tries to get out, they just won't let him. This guy becomes kind of his buddy almost family. He helps him get an adopted son when they try to adopt on their own. And, you know, the adoption agency finds out he's a a convicted felon and they won't let him be eligible for adoption. So this guy finds him a son. He finds him his house. He sets him up with these jobs. And then when Frank tries to say, no, that was the only one I want, the guy says, no, you know, you're in it. And even before that, they had agreed on a payment, which that payment was going to be the last payment Frank needed to get this life that he wanted. Right. But Leo doesn't give him that payment. He kind of, he gives him part of it. And then he says like he invested the rest in this like, like scam business he's got on the side. Yeah. 
everything that he's doing, he's clearly doing as part of the plan to suck him in and oh, kind yeah. of own him. Right. And hold on, we need to go back to, did you just call Robert Prosky a terrible actor? No, 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 no. He was actually really great in this part. I had never really seen him before. So when he showed up on screen, I'm like, who's this guy? He's supposed to be like some scary yeah. guy they're meeting at night. Well, that's what's nuts is that this was the very, this was his first film role. Oh, okay. He was a theater actor. And that's one of the things, Michael Mann, he, he actually picked a lot of actors in here. If they weren't actual thieves or cops, yeah, yeah, which was the case in a lot of the characters in this film, especially in the scenes when they interact with police, a lot of those guys were actual detectives or they were thieves. And the detectives and the thieves knew each other because they had been, you know, involved and obviously, you know, had been arrested, whatever, tracked them and stuff. But um, Robert Prosky was mainly like, you know, he was known very well as a theater actor, but this was his first film role. And he's phenomenal. I mean, in fact, I think he steals the movie almost. I think he almost beats out James Caan with his performance of just pure like evil. Oh, yeah. Yeah. His other great villain character is um, in the movie The Natural, if you've uh, if you've ever seen that where he plays the owner of the uh, of the baseball team. Mm. Just his performance in there is just, it's worth watching that movie just for, I mean, that movie's a great movie to begin with, but just for his performance in that film, I think he just really creates a great character. He's a really great character actor. He does have that look like he could be a manager of a baseball team or something. But he's a very corrupt, evil owner of this team in that film. But he's also in, um, he's in the remake of... Uh, I think he's in the remake of Miracle on 34th Street oh. that was done like in the 90s. And he's this lovable, he's like a judge, but he's also kind of like a decent guy. He's not like a, you know, a bad guy. So yeah, great. Definitely a great actor. I mean, I would say like in this film, like Jim Belushi, he doesn't really do anything for me. I don't think he really has anything that he's bringing. Unlike the rest of the cast, which is like Tuesday Weld, I think, again, like I don't, think she gets enough credit for this film but i think just the looks on look on her face just the way she carries herself and acts she's just been through so much it's easily conveyed i mean i think that was great casting to kind of cast her because she talks about her like i think her ex was like a drug dealer and just that she's been through like her life and all the crap that she's been through and it kind of like has them fit together because she just comes across as being very exhausted and just tired of all the crap and james Kahn is kind of in the same boat and they just end up together Frank's character is like pretty misogynistic towards her yeah. <laughs> from like the get-go in the film. There's definitely uh, several problematic lines in this movie, not mainly about women, but there were a lot of racial comments that weren't yeah. great. Yeah. Leo does make a really disparaging remark about what he's going to do to Jesse at the end of the movie when he's threatening Frank. Yeah. That one's not great. I think one of the great scenes is... um towards the end when he's trying to break away from Jesse and kind of send her away to protect her. And I think that whole conversation at the end, also the way that he, he speaks, I think is more noticeable. There was a Frank's character I'm talking about is the way that he tries to sound more sophisticated where he doesn't really use contractions that often. Yes. I think you see that in that scene when he's like, he enunciates very well. He's like, we are not going. You are going. Leo, what's what's wrong? And then just the way that he says, get out, yeah, and he repeats it. Get out. Get out. Get out! He's old yellowing her. Yeah, yeah, but doing it so well, though. I think another actor in another movie, that actor, because I've seen this before in other films where that actor would be like welling up with tears in their eyes 
Like I'm not. I don't want to say this, but I have to, and you have to get out. Yeah. And he's not. He's, he's just like cold, cold as yeah. ice. Yeah. yeah. He says earlier in the film, you know, I think you mentioned it earlier when he was like, "I don't care about nothing," and like you got to get to where like nothing means nothing. Yeah. Having Jesse and his son both kind of affect that, where he does care about something. He's caring about them by yelling at them, but also still too. You just see this like he just is able to really present like, "Hey, you know what? I really don't care about you. Get out. Just get away from me." Yeah, you know, on the uh, commentary, they said the reason he never uses contractions is because by saying each word individually, he would be clearly heard and he would only ever have to tell somebody something once. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like a, a threat just in the way he speaks. Yep, yeah, that was, I thought that was pretty cool. And I, I agree. I think Tuesday Well played a great mix of kind of being out of the loop, but also knowing what's going on. She's got this like feigned ignorance of what he does. Mm -hmm. There's a scene kind of halfway through the movie where he pulls her out of a bar and throws her in the car, literally, and drives away. That was definitely a a misogynistic uh, scene because he kind of pulls a gun on a guy who's trying to go in and break up this fight between Frank and Jesse. But anyway, in the car, he's kind of yelling at her. She's getting all worked up about, you know, he's... He's out of control and he's acting this way and he's telling her like, what the hell do you think that I do? Come on, come on. Come on. Every morning I walk in for five months, say hi. What the hell do you think that I do? Yeah. He's straight up asking her what she thinks, like where he gets this money from, which I thought was a very almost opposite line from what you would see in The Godfather, where he says, don't ask me about my business, Kate. Is it true? Don't ask me about my business. No. Here, Frank is really saying like, no, I want you to admit what I do. Right. She has to be a part of his life. She needs to understand what this, he needs her to admit what he's doing. Whereas in a movie like The Godfather, it's like, no, no, no. Don't even pretend you know what I'm doing. Right. I mean, that goes back to um, where he goes to visit Oklahoma in prison, where he's kind of talking to about it. And he's like, there's this woman. And, you know, what do I tell her? And I think, uh, you know, Oklahoma has that great quote. He's like, lie to no one. If there's somebody close to you, you're going to run it with a lie. And if they're a stranger, who the f*** are they? You got to lie to. And I think that's what he's taking that and just decides, you know what? Yeah. No, I got to tell the truth. If you still want to be with me, that's fine. If not, yeah. you know, here's the door. And you know what? I think Jim Belushi, you know, he wasn't a standout role, but this was not a comedy role. And I feel like he did. He did that role well. Yeah, that's true. You know, there wasn't any any need for that role to be this like amazing standout role, but he, I think he played that part well. And there's like a scene towards the end where he has to kind of do a little stunt work, getting thrown into a car. Yeah, yeah. And then onto the ground, and it's clearly him in the shot. You know, hats off to him for going a little a little above and beyond. Yeah, doing his own stunts. And then another connection, speaking of Belushi's, is that the prison that Frank and I guess Okla we're in is the same prison that the Blues Brothers are getting out of in the beginning of the Blues Brothers. Oh, really? It's a Joliet prison in Illinois. Frank says he was at Joliet prison. I don't know if that's the same prison that Okla's at now, but that's kind of a Belushi Blues Brothers reference. But speaking of the prison, there were a couple nice little details that Michael Mann threw in here. Frank has three dots on his right hand, I believe. Mm -hmm. 
the inside of his right hand. And it's such a small detail. You wouldn't, it's not made noticeable in any particular scene. It's just there. Mm-hmm. That's like a prison tattoo. And, and I'm probably going to do this wrong because I'm, I'm going off of Google here. It's uh, Latin, Mi Vida Loca, or My Crazy Life. Huh. It's not associated with any particular gang, but just kind of the lifestyle of being in prison. Sometimes you'd see it like around eyes. I feel like you see that uh, more nowadays. Yeah. So that was kind of interesting that it's just a little detail they threw in there. And then there was another detail where Frank is reading a letter from Okla towards the beginning. Frank uh, or Okla wrote to him from prison. And if you actually kind of read the letter, he misspells, Okla misspells the word your, Y-O-U-R, instead of Y-O-U apostrophe R-E. And then later on, when Frank is trying to adopt the baby, the woman at the uh, adoption agency says, By the way, misspelled male, it's M-A-L-E. The others will be put in post boxes. I'm not sure if Frank misspelled it or if Jesse misspelled it. But either way, if Frank went to prison so young, there's a lot of learning he probably missed out on. And it kind of seems like Okla did too. They just have some right. minor uh, grammatical errors going. <laughs> Maybe that's nitpicky, but it seemed, it seemed kind of yeah. interesting. I, I don't know if that was on purpose that they misspelled it on the letter. You would assume it was misspelled on purpose. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it was done intentionally to kind of, you know, convey that, that they were not the most intelligent, you know, from a book smart standpoint. Yeah. I did think it was nice that during their conversation too, Frank and Jesse, she tells him in that diner. I can't, uh, I can't have children. I don't fit into this. Well, we adopt. So she's been straight honest with him. And it seems like at that point, they haven't really been together that long. But he's like, yeah, I don't care. We can adopt. Right. Yeah. He wants this picture of a family. He doesn't necessarily care how he gets it. He just wants that. Right. Yeah. And I think that's his whole life. Like he wants that life and he doesn't care how he gets it. He just wants that. Yeah, definitely. One of my favorite scenes is really, I think the ending of this movie is just perfect from like a, I mean, it's it's early 80s, but I think it's just a perfect 80s like action movie scene, but done in a really interesting way. You know, he goes to um, DeLeo's house to kill him after he's, like, blown his own, you know, house up, blown his own, uh, you know, car dealership up. And just that, like, slow motion gun battle that occurs mm-hmm. with, like, him, Dennis Farina, we really talk about. He's kind of, like, a little, you know, minor character in here. He's, like, drinking milk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but just that whole, and there's that whole, like, epic, you know, 80s guitar riff yeah. during that scene. That's just, uh, I think that just is just that you know, a really great ending, uh, ending to that movie. Yeah. That riff, it really got in my head from what I have read. That final song was not done by the same composers that did the rest of the music. Oh, really? Tangerine dream. Tangerine dream did everything else, but the final song is called confrontation by Craig Safan. Huh? And to me, it really, really sounded like Pink Floyd. From the film. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. Basically, almost every song on The Wall from Pink Floyd kind of has that right. very uh, wailing guitar, jam band, trippy style. But it really does work great in this scene because there's no talking. It's just kind of stealthy, creeping around, shooting out. You don't know if your protagonist is dead or what's going on. And then it, it just kind of ends from there. Yeah. You know, there's like a zoom out and he kind of like walks off into the quote sunset. But you never really find out if if him and Jesse are getting back together. Does he go for her or has he just given up on that life now? I think the ending was great, too. I kind of I mean, I like films where the ending is left somewhat unresolved. I think it just kind of like allows you to walk out of the theater you're still thinking about it because you're speculating what you think the ending of the film is. Yeah, yeah. And I think it just kind of fits his fits his character perfectly because he's started the movie kind of all by himself and he's all by himself at the end. He's still not really anywhere near that picture, which he burns. You know, he throws that out and lets that picture burn up. Yeah, he burns the picture and we didn't mention that he also burns down his car dealership and he blows up the cocktail lounge, which I didn't even realize he owned that. He does own it. <laughs> it's actually in the uh, in the insert of the Blu-ray talks about that scene. And he's, you know, symbolic. He's getting rid of all those attachments. Right. So that Leo or anybody can't have control over him by controlling these things of his. He's getting rid of those things. So he has no ties. He's doing it himself. He's not going to let somebody else have control of his life. Yeah, exactly. It's such an extreme way to do that. <laughs> you know, you're basically saying that if I have things people can hurt me so i'm just going to get rid of all my things if i have love or i'm married somebody can use that to hurt me it's a very like superhero kind of plot device especially in like the um toby mcguire spider-man movies <laughs> yeah where he's like no matter what i do no matter how hard i try the ones i love will always be the ones who pay right and then they would find her and use her against them anyway, so it didn't really matter. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, one more scene I wanted to mention was going back to when we talked a little bit about the adoption, you know, about uh, adopting a son. I, I really liked that scene when he's in there with the um, with the adoption agent and she finds out that he was a criminal. And just his whole flip-out monologue that he has there when he goes off about how he was state-raised. I got some ABC-type information for you, lady. I was state-raised, and this is a dead place. A child in eight-by-four green walls. After a while, you tell the walls, my life is yours. Well, you grow up in the suburbs? Yes. Right, right. Again, I think that's just a, a great performance by James Caan. Like, yeah. he's just, like, seething with anger and hatred to this person. But he doesn't start out that way. He gives her a chance, and he plays it kind of cool when... When she's getting to that, because she says like, oh, you listed whatever state penitentiary on here. What did you do? And he kind of like makes a little joke about, oh, you know, I shine shoes. I did this and that. And then he says, look, lady, I was in jail. But he's still being kind of nice to her. It's only when she gets really obstinate about it. Yeah. He was trying to be nice. He was really trying to give her a chance. But then, yeah, she's just like, oh, we can't help you out. Yeah. He's like, I was state raised. You got kids laying around here. What do you mean you can't? I don't want to say like what he says. He gets a little uh, racist there. So we'll take a kid that's not so desirable. You got a black kid? We'll take a black kid. You got a kid? You don't seem to understand. No one likes older kids. You got an eight-year-old black kid? We'll take him. Yeah. 
he can see that there's kids and they're a family that will take kids. And she's just saying, no, we can't. You know, we got this wait list. Yeah. That was a good scene. I did like that. And they send a police officer over to kind of escort him out. Yeah. He's not intimidated by that at all. He just stands right up to him. He's still treating his wife very respectfully and, you know, lets her go first. He's trying to be show he's classy, but you can tell that just got under his skin. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why this, you know, movie is in the Criterion Collection. Put aside the fact that it's Michael Mann's first feature film, which that in and of itself pegs it as a perfect candidate to, to sit in the Criterion Collection. Yeah. But also just like it's a huge performance by James Caan. I think it rivals his performance in The Godfather. And if people were going to say, like, you know, if there's one movie that um, I should watch to really see how great of an actor James Caan is, I would say this film over The Godfather. Oh, I would say Elf, but then I would say this. Yeah. Yeah, he was the dad in Elf, right? Yeah, yeah. That's true. I forgot he was an elf. Yeah, yeah. No, he's an elf. And he was um, he was on a TV series. Um, uh, Vegas. Ve- Las Vegas. Right? Yeah, or Vegas or yeah, Las yeah. Vegas or whatever it was. I watched that show for a little bit. He was actually really good in that show, too. Um, there was a running gag in that show where um, he had actually never seen the movie The Godfather. And they, the ca- character's like, how could you never see that movie? It's like one of the greatest movies ever. He's like, nah, I never saw it. Never liked it. Never was interested in seeing it. So it's kind of funny, uh, kind of running running gag in that show. So Yeah, that was good. Uh, that was like uh, Josh Duhamel. Is that his name? Yeah. It was like his, I don't know what he was, head of security or something. Yeah, like Casino. Yeah. I forget what, what Casino was. So There's just one final thing I will say, which... Um, I guess there's really two final things we should say, but I'll let you handle the second half. The first half is I always try to tie together different movies that we've seen and reviewed. So in episode 16 of Criterion on the Couch, we reviewed The Breakfast Club. And I don't know if you caught it, but early on in this movie, when Frank is at his car dealership and he gets the letter from Okla, he kind of walks through his office and goes out through where the mechanics are working to go read his letter, like sit out on the sidewalk and read it. One of the mechanics (laughs) working on the cars is John Capellos, a.k.a. Carl from The Breakfast Club. Oh, no way. He's he's got longer hair, so... Nice. That's a good catch. I missed that. Yeah, I thought it was him, and I had to check IMDb, but yeah, that was him. Nice. The other thing we didn't really talk about was... Well, I guess we kind of did. You mentioned why this is in the Criterion Collection. Yeah. And really it's directorial debut and just such amazing acting. And for once, I would agree. I'm often questioning why a movie is in the collection, but this deserves to be in the Criterion Collection. Yeah, exactly. That's it for this episode of Criterion on the Couch. You can find the show notes at criteriononthecouch.com slash thief. Next time, we'll be discussing the Michael Bay epic, The Rock. We'll be joined by a former Navy SEAL to give us insights into how realistic that movie really was. We'd love it if you were to give us a five-star review in iTunes. Uh, That really helps us out and helps other people find our podcast as they're browsing around looking for something to listen to. Also, don't forget to check us out on Facebook. On Twitter, we are at Criterion Couch. And on Instagram, we are at Criterion on the Couch. I'm Adam Urich with Jim Massessa. Thanks for listening. See you next time.